Okie doke. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome, Cedar Mill. We are so excited for you to be here. If you are new, welcome, and uh, we would love to know you're here. There's a little card that says, I'm here, in the pew in front of you. We would ask you to just fill that out so we can say hey and uh, help you uh, take steps to be connected here and uh, and uh, welcome you here. So, well, let's, uh, before we get into this morning's message, I uh, just want to remind the dudes in the room that there's a men's breakfast next weekend. You can sign up for it in the lobby. Also, uh, just want to let you know, too, as a church family, that uh, Judy Prohaska uh, passed away on Saturday. And so I would just ask you to pray for her family, Richard, her husband, her daughter, Susan, and her husband, John. Um, memorial details are still to come, but we, we would ask you to just pray for them as well. And let's, let's do that now. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Uh, our Father in heaven, you are uh, holy and good, and uh, we remember the scriptures that teach that you are compassionate and gracious, uh, that you are um, full of loving kindness. You are steadfast in your love, uh, slow to anger, and uh, you are forgiving in your nature as you uphold justice. And so we, we thank you for being the kind of God that you are. We pray that the fullness of who you are in your nature would be experienced and felt by the Prohaska family. Uh, and we also pray too, uh, during this season of uncertainty and fear and uh, turmoil, we pray for our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters who are meeting right now up in the chapel uh, for ones who are fearful and uncertain of um, uh, things that maybe seem like certainties for many others. And so I pray right now for your peace, your joy, steadfastness, and an experience of your presence as defender and provider and as sovereign over their stories and over our stories. And so we pray, come now, Spirit, open our ears, open our hearts, help us to respond to your word in ways that bring you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Open up in your Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 41. We are continu- continuing our Returning King series. And uh, it is a look at the end of the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke for about three years and we are almost done. Uh, this morning I said like, all right, turn to Luke 1. And I was like, wait, no, sorry, we're not starting over. I promise that. Um, so... Let's uh, jump right into it today. Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He, uh, this is the final scene in his conflict and controversy in the temple. The temple, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, is the place where heaven and earth are supposed to meet for the people of God, Israel. And it is the center of their universe, the focal point for their existence. And it is a place that is full of injustice and it has become uh, perverted and from its intent and its purpose. And Jesus is there and he is uh, questioning and critiquing and he is conf- in conflict with the, the liberal left, the Pharisees and the conservative right. The, um, the Pharisees and the left would be the Sadducees. He's going at everybody and calling them to another story entirely. And so this is the kind of the final scene in the temple. It says that Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important, or love the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting in their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, more than all the others, or I'm sorry, truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's word. And, uh, and I have to tell you, this is a challenging three stories all sewn together. It's three little stories kind of put together in one context. I tried to trade it with Dave, honestly. I was like, this is, like, didn't take it. I was like, man, why not? I, I'll take resurrection and marriage. That's weird. I'll deal with that one. He's like, nope. And so here we are, right? I, and you know what? I have to tell you, it was challenging for me all week long. This is such a direct challenge to some things that are inherently like messed up in me. And so it's been a great week for me. (laughs) And you get to reap the benefits. So, okay. All right. Well, to understand how these three little stories, the story about Jesus, the Messiah, and then the the teachers of the law and this widow, how do they all relate to each other? We're going to just have to dive right in. And so I'm going to encourage you to... Like, turn on whatever brain power you need, stick with me, there's some reward at the end, and hopefully some good scenery along the way, but we're going to have to, like, dive in here. All right, let's do it. Verse 41, Jesus asks a question. It's the only time recorded in Luke where Jesus asks the question about the scriptures, and so he says, why is it that the Messiah is called the son of David. Why is it that the Messiah is called the son of David? Well, now, in American society, we have iconic figures, right? We have icons for different sorts of things. You think about, uh, you know, back into the 20th century, uh, the icon um, of innovation and business. Think of like uh, Henry Ford. He's iconic for innovation and, and business. Martin Luther King Jr. He's iconic for social change and activism. Well, you get the picture. We have lots of icons, people who represent greatness in a particular area. Well, in ancient Israel, the great icon, the one, the figure who loomed large over the imaginations of the people was King David. He is the iconic king, a man after God's own heart. Excuse me triumphant over Israel's enemies. He is this poet, warrior king. But not only is he a great king, uh, there's this really cool plot twist in David's story where David becomes uh, the person associated with a very particular promise, this promise of a Messiah, uh, which is literally the anointed one. 
this king, a savior king. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God promises Abram that through his people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All these nations who are rebellious and pursuing other false gods, God says it's through you, through your family, through your offspring, I will bless the nations. And now David is promised by God that he is now the continuation of Abraham's story, that the promise of Abraham now gets focused and will be realized through David's family. And in fact, David will have a son who is a king who will rule forever. This is what Second Samuel 7 says. Second Samuel 7 is one of the most famous passages that teaches on this idea of a Messiah through David's line. God says to David this, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... When you're toast, right? When you're dead, he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is this messianic figure who's a son of David. And so that is the backdrop to the question Jesus is asking, right? So why is the Messiah called David's son? Well, like, duh, he's the son of David. That was the promise. And so we know that Jesus as well comes from the line of David. Luke records this in his genealogy. But then Jesus asks the religious leaders to consider a very famous Old Testament passage, right? And he says, uh, Let's rewind. Let's take a look at Psalm 110. And uh, this is by far the most wildly popular Old Testament passage in the New Testament, by the way. Psalm 110 is quoted and alluded to more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's in Mark, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in Acts, it's throughout Paul's letters, and it's in Hebrews. It's all over the place, and Jesus uses it to ask a question. He says, how is it then that the Messiah can be David's son when you have Psalm 110 in your Bible? Look at Psalm 110 with me. This is what it says. Uh, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? Back in, in, in the Hebrew, right? You can see even in English, we've translated Lord, all caps. The Lord, all caps, says to my Lord, lowercase, right? You see that? Your Bible's there? Okay. What's up with that? Well, it's, it's there to say in Hebrew, Lord, all caps is Yahweh or the proper name of God, God's covenant name. And Lord, lowercase, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. Okay, so Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand, which means rule with me. That's imagery for sharing the throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies, and on and on it goes. Now, Psalm 110 was a royal psalm, which means that it was a psalm of David. David's the author, and it was read at the installment of kings. So when there was a new king in Israel, they would like pray this, looking forward to God's eventual righting of the wrongs of the world through this messianic savior king. And it looked forward to this king who would rule with God himself. That's, of course, why it says, sit at my right hand. So the psalm envisions this Messiah, this king who will triumph over Israel's enemies, co-ruling, sharing the throne with the God of Israel until all the Messiah's enemies are a footstool. Now, how encouraging is that? Right? I think that's pretty cool. All the enemies of injustice and righteousness, all of the enemies of what's good and right and bring shalom into the world will eventually be reduced into an Ottoman. Right? That's 
what he's saying, essentially, right? The, the, the footstool imagery is the imagery of defeat, right? So the enemies of justice, the enemies of the Messiah will be defeated. Now, I wish we had time to get into all the dimensions of the psalm. We don't. The question Jesus is asking is this. How in the world can David's son at the same time be David's Lord? Are you with me? So how can David's son be David's Lord? See, in a patriarchal society, David is the patriarch. He's at the top. He is the master of the house. Right? Not like Thenardier, but like David. So no musical theater fans. Okay, so, uh, and so, unless, so here's, here's the thing. In a patriarchal society, David, the patriarch, would never refer to his offspring, his great, great, great grandson, or whoever else, as master. Right? Because he's the older one. He's the patriarch. So what's David, the author of the psalm, saying, Yahweh says to my master, rule, right? Like we're talking about the messianic king, what in the world? And so he would never call his offspring his master unless there is a future David-like king who's actually greater than David himself, who's worthy of more devotion and honor and praise and worship. And so Jesus is saying, look, David calls him Lord. How can he be his offspring? Well, he's not saying that the Messiah is not from David's line. What he's saying is the ultimate category for Messiah isn't that he's the son of David. The ultimate category for the Messiah is that he's the son of God. Okay? And so the Messiah isn't so much a reminder of David as David is a foreshadow and a preview of the Messiah. That David paints a picture of the kind of king who will come. That uh, this king who will share the throne of Yahweh and defeat the enemies of Yahweh and bring justice and righteousness, right? So it's not only is the Messiah going to be a man after God's own heart like David, but he's actually going to be God become man. You see, that's what Jesus is driving at. So why am I, why am I spending this much time on Messiahship? Why is this important to your life? Well, it's really simple. What category do you put Jesus in? Like, what's the category that Jesus fits in within your thought process and your heart? Is Jesus just a religious figure or a wise teacher? Or maybe he's just kind of this solution for guilt or shame, right? And you use him like an app on your phone. Like, ah, I have some guilt. I need to use my Jesus app. Clean it up, right? What category does Jesus fit in for you? Like, where where does he register What category does Jesus fit in here? Because he's saying the Messiah isn't ultimately the son of David, a mere Israelite, a simple first century Jew. The Messiah is master. He's Lord, the son of God. In the Greek translation of this Psalm 110 passage, it's actually, they don't differentiate between Yahweh and Adonai. It's actually Kyrios and Kyrios, Lord and Lord. And so it's ambiguous, actually. And that's what Jesus is quoting here. And so... Jesus is Lord. He's the one who rules from heaven. He's the king who's triumphed over death itself. Go read Acts 2 in Peter's sermon. And he quotes Psalm 110 again. This time it makes even more sense because he's talking about Jesus who's triumphed over death and he sits at the right hand because he's ascended into heaven. Right? And it's a very important passage for the New Testament authors. Don't mistake the fact that the Messiah is master. Don't make him into your personal spiritual assistant. It doesn't work like that, right? He's not an app. 
to just use when you want to. He's not a brand to self, to, to promote your image. He's Lord of all. Or he's nothing at all. So he's not saying to you, let me into your life. He's saying to you, let me be Lord of your life. He's not saying to you, I want, I want to be a part of your story. He's saying, I want to write you into my story. See, this is the point that Jesus is drawing out here. He's helping blow up the categories of Messiah until we understand that he is Lord of all. And so he quotes Psalm 110 to say, get your picture of me right and it will shape your response to me. So let's keep going. Let's keep working through this. Understanding who he is then sets up this contrast between two different responses, two different ways of responding. Look at uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. I love it. It's like, huddle up. Guys, don't be that guy. Right? Like that's what he's doing. Right? Guys, don't be that guy. Don't be like them. Okay, he huddles them up. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Just watch out for dudes who love to walk around in flowing robes. Like the principle stands today. Like, just beware. You don't know what's going to happen next. Okay, beware of the guys who like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Oh. And so Jesus says, beware of these guys and their example. He says, avoid their way of life. Don't live like that. Why? Why not? Because they're concerned with their image. They are more concerned with their image than they are for their character. So who are these guys? Who are these teachers of the law? Literally, they are the Torah teachers, or the teachers of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They were like the pastors of the day, plus having a legal function. They were like a pastor and a lawyer combined. In fact, they're like a setup to a joke. It's like if a pastor and a lawyer walk into a bar, but it's only one person, what is it? It's a teacher of the Torah. So... Um, it took you a second, but you got there. Good. So, um, they were at the top of the social stratosphere. These guys were icons of success, unlike maybe pastors today, right? So they're in a religious culture. Pastors are at the top and an irreligious culture. Pastors at the bottom. I one time I met one of Penny's friends. They're from England and he was, uh, he was like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, what's that? Is that, is that are you like a vicar? And I'm, like, and I'm like, yeah, sure. And he's like, I've just met a vicar. I've never met a vicar before. And it was like this novel thing. It was just really funny. I was like, yeah, here we are. I'm bottom of the social stratosphere. So um, uh, next time I'm just going to tell him I work for a nonprofit. So, um, <laughs> and so it's just, I guess lawyers are kind of there too, aren't they? Anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, wah, wah. So Jesus, right, he sees through their sham. He sees through the sham importance that they are propping up. Right? They were at the top socially, but he says, I see right through it. And he's warning us to heed his advice. He says, listen up. You have to be careful about these people and their way of life. And then he describes their way of life. Sorry. He says this, they like to walk around in flowing robes, right? 
sketchy. No, here's what's going on with the flowing robes. Uh, in, in that day, a flowing robe described the, the garb of a religious scribe or a teacher of the law. It was very expensive, very ornate. It would have this mantle that kind of hung around your neck and went down to your feet and would have these tassels. And it was, it was a very expensive thing to wear. And so when you wore this ostentatious robe, it was saying, I have the wealth to afford it. And I have arrived, right? It, I mean, clothes also today offer status, do they not? Right? So then he says, uh, they love to be greeted in the marketplace with respect. They love the attention, recognition, and adoration of their public arena. Uh, the, the formal greetings that are given to them is another way for them to stake their claim to an important life, that they have importance and value. Not only that, they love to have the most important seats in the synagogue uh, now, in the synagogue, the place where the Torah was read and, and taught was this place then where the, the teachers of the Torah would sit on this bench up in front of the whole synagogue so everybody could see you, right? You didn't have social media back then to say, I'm important. Look at this selfie of me with somebody cool. It's, I'm sitting on the bench of the synagogue, right? And I'm so important up here. Um, maybe you have a similar kind of thing that's like, I don't know, think, think about that person who has the, the reserved parking spot at the office, right? And every day you walk past and you see their high-end German vehicle parked in that spot with their name on it. And you're like, wow, they must be important. And Jesus is like, nope, not important, right? <laughs> not important, right? And so they love to have honor at banquets, the seats of honor at banquets. Now, at a banquet in those days, you would have this U-shaped table, and the host would sit at the center of the U. And, and the closer you were to the host, the more important you were, the higher up the hierarchy in that room you were. And to sit down at the end was lame, right? And to, or to sit on the floor was even worse. And so it, it was this way of saying they love to appear more important than the other guests. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you've ever like gone to like that Thanksgiving meal with the family and then they made a mistake with the logistics and the organization and it's like, you're at the kids table. Sorry, you're 40. And you know, it's like, and you're like, why am I at the kids table? And then the passive aggressive aunt's like, well, if you would have had some kids and gotten married by now, you would sit at the grown up table and you're like, ah. right? And so you want the seat of honor, right? You want to be up next to the passive aggressive aunt instead of at the table. Why? Anyway, so, Let's keep going. Um, they, they love the places of honor. They want to look higher up in the hierarchy. And let me tell you, friends, this is what pride always does. Pride always compares ourselves to others. Right? Pride is fueled by comparisons. And so it compares ourselves to others. It rates our own worth on being able to outrank someone at something. Now, some of us have some really dumb measurements. Other, others of us have honed our measurements over a lifetime. We're really good at knowing when we outrank somebody else. And we like it. Pride always compares itself with others, looking to outrank someone. Humility always looks for genuine connection with others, knowing that rank is meaningless. Jesus says that these Torah teachers... Says they're the kind of folks who devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly what that means, other than probably it has to do with the function of their legal 
um, status. These, these were the kinds of people who would cheat widows out of their estates uh, as they worked with them legally, or that they would pilfer these widows out of their income under religious pretenses. And Jesus goes on and he, he unmasks their motivation. He says they make a show of lengthy prayers. The prayer is an engagement with God. It is a show for other people. And so with their lengthy prayers, they worsen their own situation because they're making a show of their spirituality while living a spirituality that is totally hollow. What a bunch of creeps, right? Man, what kind of people would be obsessed with managing their image? Like spending their wealth on clothing to give them a sense of value and importance? Always wanting attention and recognition in their social network, trying to appear more important and powerful. Hmm. We couldn't relate to that, right? So here's the deal. My guess is some of you, all of you, are convicted by at least one of these things, if not the entire list, right? Appearance, attention, importance, pride, the neglect of the vulnerable. See, does it ever bother you when somebody gets credit for something you feel like you deserve to be recognized for how much does that sting how much time did you spend getting ready this morning too soon okay not much somebody's like not much good for you i had to think about it a little bit i was like man i don't know like i stand in front of a thousand people i don't want to look like a total tool yeah here we go so it hits home doesn't it What's the seat of honor for you? What's that seat of honor that drives you? That to have it means you've arrived, and to not have it, man, it kills you. Where's that seat of honor for you? Because when the way of the Torah teachers seeps into the church, let me tell you this, that when this way of valuing life, measuring life, and living life seeps into the church, I think it is like one of the single greatest reasons people look at Christianity and go, I can see right through it. They're not seen through the gospel. They're seen through our falsehood and our spiritual idolatry. I don't want anything to do with that. And if that's you here today and you've seen through it, let me tell you, Jesus sees through it too. And he offers a different way. Here's what kills me too about this. I have their job. I'm a teacher of the Torah. I reference Genesis 12 today. Like, I have literally taught Torah today. And so I am susceptible. I mean, as I go through this list, I'm like, oh boy, like fashion. Hmm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it drives me, but I really do have a thing for like high quality, like raw salvaged denim. I mean, I get it on super sale. So like, that makes me feel like it's justified, but it does make me feel pretty good. Special greetings? Hmm. You know, I'm not too personally into being called pastor. I I would just as soon tell you, just please just call me Matt. I'm Matt. I'm just Matt. All right? But I got to be honest. When we start talking about maybe like what I do, and I think that you think that I'm not very important, I start to feel kind of like defensive. Hey, I do stuff. I do important stuff. Right? That's how I feel. And if I'm really honest, it's very easy for me to begin rating myself, right, by comparisons as a dad, as a husband, education, how how I'm doing as a pastor, how our church is. I mean, stupid stuff. 
to compare yourself, right? But it really, here, let me tell you, it does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you do for a living. We, as humans, are tempted to measure our worth and our importance by comparing ourselves to others, by the attention and recognition that we receive, by the applause and the value that other people give us. So for you, maybe it's your role at work. Maybe it's the house you own and the neighborhood you're in or that vacation house you have or the likes you get on Instagram or Facebook, right? Maybe it's just being needed by others. Maybe like you feel important when somebody calls you and needs you. So the question this morning for you is, do you know where you're susceptible to the way of the Torah teachers? Do you know the places where you're susceptible like I just shared with you some of the places where I'm susceptible. Here's how you know. How would you feel if you didn't have it? How would you feel if it was taken away? Like that house, that job, that person's approval. How would you be doing if that wasn't there? And what's the one command in this whole passage? The one imperative of Jesus? Beware. Right? He says, beware. Watch out. Beware of constantly caring what everyone else thinks of you, needing to be important, right? of managing our appearance, our image more than our character, managing perception more than reality. Let me suggest to you that one of our main culprits in our society, in our modern culture, that draws us into the way of the Torah teachers, I think, is social media. I think this is one of the things, right? It's like, how, how, how many selfies does it take for people to know what you look like? You're like, yep, same person. This time with a sandwich. That's like, this is good. <laughs> so, there's a reason, right? There's a reason you can't find me online on a social media platform. It's because years ago, I overdid it. Years ago, I had to just quit. Like I quit Facebook and then I found out that it was still like on and I like really killed it. How do you, like how hard do you have to work to get yourself off of the, like the grid? Killed my Instagram, killed, killed my Twitter the other week because I realized I had one and didn't even, I'd never used it. So, you know, why is that? It's because honestly, just to be really transparent with you, I couldn't handle it. I just could, I couldn't handle it because there was so much image management and the pressure to like take care of my own image like it was too much for me i cared too much about the status and the recognition that others were getting it was distracting me from focusing on the stuff god wanted to do in me i was busy but i was busy comparing myself to others i I realized like i'm checking to see whether or not i'm liked on a stupid phone more than i'm checking in with jesus in prayer and i was at that point was like i i'm i'm out i'm over it I don't need it. I haven't missed it at all. I, could, I really don't feel like I have missed out on a single thing. I feel like I was missing out on something before. And so what about you? Maybe for you, you can pick a less extreme route. That was, that was the extreme I needed because it was an idol issue in my life. And so maybe for you, I just suggest a fast. Just a social media fast. Like just a couple days a week, a couple hours a day maybe, where you just simply don't look, you don't post, you don't update, you don't selfie, you don't pick up your phone, you just don't. Just fast from it. Let it be a spiritual discipline so you can be aware and beware of the Torah teacher way in you. 
to say, I'm going to choose to focus on the image uh, that I'm to be conformed to, which is Jesus's image, and spend less time managing my image. So this last section, this last section here is even more challenging because it completes the contrast. On one hand, Jesus says, don't be like these guys, right? Because what they do is they make self ultimately important. Now he's going to say, be like this lady because she puts God as ultimately important. Listen to this. As Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Jesus moves from criticizing the guys who are at the top of the social world, icons of success, and now he elevates this person who's at the bottom of the social world, this icon of destitution and need. And he takes this woman who's been labeled as less than her whole life. I mean, think about it. She's a less than. She has less. She possesses less. She has less to give. And yet Jesus flips it on the ta- on its head. And he says, she's a more than. He relabels her. She's a more. Why is she more? She's more generous. She gave more. Right? She's a more. Just Hang on. Let me just pause here and say, could it be that you have misassessed your own value? within your own story. See, he's inverting the way we measure ourselves. He's flipping the values on their head and he's saying, look, I measure life differently. And so the one who is a social zero is now the paradigm of faithfulness and the example in contrast to the teachers. The scene takes place at the temple, okay? And so it's this place where men and women are giving their offering, various kinds of offerings, and they're putting it into the treasury, which is literally a third... A 13 ram horn contraption. It's got 13 ram horns that are receptacles for their coins. They're each one is like this shofar shaped thing. You put your coin in the narrow end and it, and it goes into the bottom and you can hear the chains rattling all the way down. And Jesus hears or sees what's going on and he says, look, the rich, they're putting in their gifts, but this poor widow has just put in two copper coins. Now, this is important to know. The two copper coins are literally leptos or lepta each, and uh, it was unlawful to put in less than two lepta. And a lepta is the smallest coinage in the day. So a denarius was an average day's work worth of money, and she puts in two lepta, which are essentially the amount, uh, the, the value of five minutes of labor at minimum wage. That's what she's got, and that's what she gives. Two cents. She gets two cents. She gives two cents. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. What? This is backwards. See, when Jesus speaks about giving... We realize Jesus doesn't count, he weighs. He weighs what we give in comparison to what we keep. He looks at not so much at what we give, but how much we keep and is left behind. Some people have literally nothing of any financial value in the world, and yet their minimal amount that is given from God's perspective is a maximum gift. 
says the rich give vast amounts, but their giving doesn't begin to impinge on the fact that they're still rich. They give their big sums and they're still rich folks, right? They're not eating any less after giving all that money. And so this woman, on the other hand, he says, literally gave it all. She gave it all. To give this kind of gift is to reveal her total trust and total reliance on God for her life. She is destitute. She has two cents. She gives two cents. She has to rely on God for the next two cents. She does not have a reserve account. There are no stock options for her. That's it. So God's going to have to provide. Here's the question. What pleases God in this story? Like, what is it that pleases him? Is it the flashy spirituality that gets lots of attention from the Torah teachers? No. Is it the great sums of money given by the rich? Nope. I think this story is telling us that what pleases God is sacrifice that comes from trust. Sacrifice rooted in faith. It's not the self-aggrandizing way of the Torah teachers. It's the self-giving way of the widow that pleases God. And if you rewind in your Bible back to the first story where there is an offering, it's the story from Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel. So there are two stories. Cain, one brother, offers some grain. He's a farmer. He offers some grain, the text says. But Abel, it says, offered a sacrifice from the firstborn of his flock, And God, it says, looked on his offering with favor. What's up with that? One is, here's some grain. The other is a sacrifice rooted in trust. How do we know it's from trust? Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says, God looked on Abel's offering with favor. Why? What he offered, he offered in faith. God is pleased with sacrifice that comes from faith. That's the norm. That's what he's calling us to. That's the invitation. So how is it that we begin to be like this widow? Let me bring this home for us. We have to be aware of our tendency to be like the Torah teacher, first of all. Right? We have to see the tendencies towards self-absorption. And we have to recognize that that path leads to zero concern for the things of God. One, com- one commentator I read this week, I'm sorry, friends. One commentator I read this week says that the more special we make ourselves the less special God becomes. The the more special I am, the more special I am with my time, my finances, my relationships, the less special God is in my life. And so you won't have the ability to trust and sacrifice right? when you're living self-important lives because that would require giving up control. That's what sacrifice does. Anyone have any control problems? You would raise your hand, but you weren't planning on it, right? So... See, if you wait for control of your life before you decide to give of your life, you'll never start doing it because you'll have built your entire life on the premise that's in direct opposition to generosity and sacrifice. Control says, I'll do it on my terms. Sacrifice says, I will give up my terms. Are you starting to feel discomfort yet? I think that's exactly why Luke includes these stories. Because following Jesus, while it's good and it is life, it is not comfortable. It's not comfortable. And so... Who do you relate to in this story, honestly? Like, as, as you read this story, who is it that you most resonate with? As you, you honestly say, I, I'm like the Torah teachers. Or would you say, I'm actually more like the widow? Who do you resonate with? Where am I tempted to be like the Torah teacher? That's the question. 
Where am I drawn that way? It's always subtle at first. It's under the surface, but it needs importance and it needs recognition. So then how is God inviting you to be like the widow today? How is he inviting you to be like her? In other words, what are your two pennies? What are your two cents? Some of you, your two cents is literally financial. Um, There's a financial dimension that God is asking you to give in your life. Um, The practice of giving to God is millennia old, okay? It it starts with Abraham offering this thing called a tithe. It is literally one-tenth. This was a way of life for the people of God. During the Old Testament, it was focused at temple. You would come and you would just shave 10% right off the top and you would give it to God uh, for the work at the temple, This practice was picked up by the church. There's not a commandment that says you must give 10% under the new covenant. Rather, it is a starting place. It's training wheels for what the Spirit will enable the community of God to do, which is to give sacrificially rooted in trust. And so that is the the New Testament norm, which is actually to start with 10% and to continue to give to Jesus for his work. Now, some of you are like, you're, you're here and you are like the widow today. You literally don't have a tenth to begin with. You're scraping by. Let me tell you today that God is not concerned with how much we give, right? He's more concerned with how much we're keeping. And so this is not, giving is not a guilt thing for him. Right? If two pennies is what you have, know that Jesus praised the woman who gave two pennies. However, I would say that most of us in this room are probably not like the widow. We're more like the teachers of the Torah or In this case, the rich folks. You're not going to eat less because you've given, probably. And so this tithing thing, for many of us, is is out of our margin. Like there's, it's extra. Maybe you feel it when it's gone. I I know, like, I I mean, I, I, I don't see it. It's gone, like, immediately. But I, I mean, when I think about what I give, it's like, wow, I, I could do some fun stuff with that, right? So there's, there's sacrifice involved. But let me tell you this. It is harder to give, right, the more we make, right? We, we think, by the way, like, I, I'll start giving later. I'll, I'll, I want to give after I've kind of got my portfolio in order, right? Let me just tell you right now, like, that is total baloney. You won't, right? You just won't because habits form us. And if you build your habit on keeping, you're not going to just automatically overturn years and years of habits, right? And so uh, the best time to start a habit of generosity, by the way, is when you're young and poor. And some of you are not so young and not so poor. So get started now before it gets even harder, right? Okay? So, and let me tell you this. As, as we build that habit of living like this widow, it becomes more and more fun and more and more joyful. I have to say, over the years, after the habit has formed our hearts and reoriented our desires over time, Lauren and I have more and more fun with it. Like, it's like, what can we do with God with this? And I've tended to start to see money as a test, right? Where God says, hey, if you can be faithful with a little, then we can talk about being faithful with much. Right? Some of us in this room have been blessed with much. And it's time to learn what it looks like to be faithful. Now, what does it look like then for you to give in a way that is sacrifice rooted in trust? The kind of trust that says, God's my provider and I'm offering my life 
through my sacrifice or through my finances. Now, these stories are taken together, all three of them. They fit together remarkably. Jesus is saying, look, hey, if you're off on my identity, if you're off on who you think I am as the son of God, then you will be off in the rest of the way that you live. And you have two options, two points of contrast, Torah teachers who are self-absorbed and widow who is God-absorbed. And she maps a way forward for us as the people of God. She offers herself in total trust and total abandonment to God. And so this story is more than a story about finances, friends. Look, there's something amazing here in the text. You miss it in English, but it's there in the Greek. It says, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And live on, at first, just looks like a material word. But in the Greek, it's bios. That's the word where we get biology. She gave all her life out of her poverty. She literally gave her whole life, is what Jesus is saying. That's pretty remarkable. Notice this, that she's giving from a place of deficit, right? It's not that she's got it all together and she's giving. It's that she's giving of herself in a place where she has deficit. What about you? What if you were to fill this in? Out of my blank, I will give all of my what? That's the invitation today. Self-abandonment in our deficiency. See, it's the deficiency, it's in the deficiency that God calls us to sacrifice. If I won't give of my life until I have everything the way I want it, right? I'll never give of my life when I don't have everything the way I want it. Maybe your two pennies are two pennies worth of time, two pennies worth of ability, two pennies worth of energy to give to building relationships that transmit the love of Jesus. See, if you wait till you have time to start, uh, and if you wait till you have time, you won't start serving. If you wait till you have money, you won't start giving. If you wait till you feel like it, you probably won't start forgiving, right? But maybe today is the day where out of that hurt, God is calling you to give your forgiveness. Maybe today it's for you out of this place of conflicting desires that God is calling you to offer your obedience, Maybe it's out of your busyness that he is asking you to offer time to be present with him and others. For others of you, it's out of your questions that he's asking you to offer your belief. It's out of your struggle that he's asking you to surrender. See, these stories go together because if Jesus is actually Lord of your life, then he'll reshape what you pursue and he'll enable you to offer your life to him and surrender And that's the invitation of this story. See, the widow, she's not just a widow. She's a picture. She's a picture of someone who gave his whole bios, his whole life. See, she pictures Jesus for us. He's Lord, not just a man who died on a cross, but he's the Lord of the universe. And he humbled himself and got into our skin and died a death he didn't deserve. He became utterly poor, utterly destitute so that you could have everything. He lost everything. He lost the Father so that you could have the Father. He took on hell for us. And if he is so self-abandoning for you, will he not be trustworthy for you in the smaller sacrifices? See, in just a minute, the band's going to come up and the ushers, after I pray, are going to come forward to um, receive our offering. Let me, let me just say this at the outset. We want to do offering at the end, not to 
you know, after talking about finances and to manipulate you into giving more. Like, we, we understand that's stupid. But what it, this moment is for you is an opportunity to take something that's totally rote that we do every week and to renew it with some purpose. And, and I would ask you, when that bag passes by, don't just go, hmm, cool, velvet bag, next person. Take that moment and consider before God, what are your two pennies today? What is he offering you to give of your life to him? So that way, the next time you see it pass by, you recognize that it's not just a bag. It's a moment of calling and invitation to live a life of abandonment to Jesus. Where are the places he's calling you to abandon yourself for him today? Maybe it's financially, maybe it's time, maybe it's people. I don't know. But the Messiah is looking for a people who will give away their lives and following him to abandon their lives for the sake of him and his mission to bless the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your profound goodness. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, and that Jesus has given everything, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But rather, you, Jesus, have made yourself nothing. You've taken on the nature of a servant. You've been made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, you have humbled yourself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, therefore, Jesus, God has exalted you to be in the highest place. You've been given a name that's above every name and that at your name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will eventually acknowledge that you, Jesus the Messiah, are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you enable us then, Spirit of God, to live like this widow in abandonment to the one who is Messiah and Lord of all? We offer our two pennies, we offer ourselves to you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.